you're listening to the Sunday Morning Sermon from First Baptist Church Seminole, Oklahoma. Good morning. I'm going to pray before Brother Nick comes to bring the word this morning. So I ask you to bow your, your heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, I come to you today in the, in the name of Jesus with humility and a thankful heart for all that you're doing in our lives as our church body. We're so thankful that you are all-powerful, and we thank you for your amazing grace. Your grace that has forever transformed my life, the lives of many in this room today. Lord, I pray as one of the shepherds of this congregation, I just pray for wisdom, patience, for endurance, for love. I pray that we serve this body of believers, that our lives would point others to the Savior. I pray this morning that you would bless this gathering of your people. I pray that you would give us ears to hear your word. Lord, you would enlighten our eyes to see wondrous things in your word this morning. You'd give us a heart to respond as the Holy Spirit calls us to confession and repentance of our sins. Lord, I pray that our prayer would be as the publican and the blind man begging on the roadside, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have mercy on us. I pray that you would provide us the grace to be doers of your word and not hearers only. I pray that your word would shape us this morning and give us direction in how we can sacrificially give and how we can love others and serve others by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I pray that you'd go before us, Lord, and make our pathway straight. We ask all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This time, our pre K through second grade can be dismissed to follow the leader to jam. Call your attention this morning to Joshua in chapter. 23, Joshua in chapter 23, and today we'll be considering verses 1 through 8 of Joshua 23. I was deeply encouraged this last week at the opportunity to travel to Midwestern Seminary with uh, Garrett and two other brothers from a sister church up the road in Stillwater. We went to a, a Nine Marks Evangelism Conference. Nine Marks is an organization founded out of Capitol Hill Baptist Church by Mark Dever that really seeks to answer the questions of ecclesiology and theology for believers. And they held an evangelism conference. So we went up there for two days of that. And it had actually been some time since I'd been to an evangelism conference, mainly because we just don't have a lot of those types of conferences anymore but also as you know the last few years conferences haven't really been on the map but they are now again and uh, I'll actually be attending another evangelism conference towards the end of this month down in Dallas there's a reason for that the reason for that is I really want 2023 to be marked in this church as a new era of evangelism and missions to see that culture of evangelism return to the local church. But the interest in this particular evangelism conference 
was because it wasn't a typical type of evangelism conference in that the focus was more on the theological and doctrinal or doctrinal clarity of the gospel as well as the pastoral urgency in developing a culture of evangelism in the local church. And during that time together, maybe nothing drove home to me more of an urgency for churches to return to a culture of evangelism than what was said by Mark Dever during a panel discussion as they were elaborating and taking questions from the audience on how to develop a culture of evangelism and why that's needed and what happened to that culture of evangelism, Mark Dever made this point. He said, the urgency is needed because we are not a people who think about the afterlife anymore. He's talking about Christians. We just think about the here and now. What we can fill our table and our plates with here in the local church to just kind of please ourselves. He said that's maybe demonstrated in one very clear example. He said in 1890, the Baptist hymnal had 150 hymns about the next life. The green hymnal in your pew has 15. That's a big difference. We don't sing about the next life like we used to. And many believe that's a direct result of the lack of urgency to evangelize a lost world and instead pour all of our resources into our here and now. Isn't it interesting how quick the desire to evangelize fades? It seems clear to me that the answer to why the desire to evangelism quickly fades is because shortly after a person comes to faith, they may notice that the mature Christians have stopped sharing their faith or to even seem concerned with leading people into faith from their own personal journey. Yet is this not the purpose of the Christian life until the Lord returns? Is it not in the final words of our Lord before He ascends to the Father? Is it not the chief purpose in Paul's letters to the churches in the New Testament to sort out the clarity of the gospel so that as the gospel is presented, people can truly know how to be reborn. Not of flesh, but of spirit. In fact, before we even get into our text this morning, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with me. I call you to turn to that. Let's look at that and understand the purpose of the church, the New Testament church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we won't read the whole chapter, but I want to read Paul's opening statements in this particular part of his letters, of this letter. He says, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. That Christ, this is what he said. The most important thing I passed on to you is that thing which I had received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the uh, apostles. Last of all, as to the one at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but by the grace of God that was with me. Whether then, whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed and raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is our faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Those, then, who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. What's the point of that? The point of that is the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth to remind them the very nature and heart of the New Testament church is to proclaim the risen Christ and to live a life that proclaims the risen Christ. And we have to sort out that doctrine of the gospel so that we can proclaim rightly the risen Christ so that we can be alive in Christ and raised in Christ. That is the point of the Christian life. If it wasn't the point, then the moment you get saved, you'd disappear and go to heaven. But instead, we have the Great Commission. The church has an urgency to be faithful with the gospel. May I urge you this morning to see something in the scriptures, to desire something from the scriptures, that theological clarity and doctrinal distinctives are given to us through the word of the Lord and by the power of the Spirit that we might know God, know His nature, know His Son, and know His will. His will for us and His will for the church. You see, this morning's message is actually titled Something About Loyalty to God. And I'm excited to preach this text for many reasons. But the main reason I come each and every Sunday excited to preach is because God is showing us something. He's showing us something. He is telling us something. He is shaping us towards something. And we must pay attention. May it not be said that we have come to find ourselves loyal to God in all things 
except the one thing that cannot be accomplished in the new heaven and new earth, and that is conversion. That is to be forgiven of your sins and given the inheritance of eternal life. Once Christ makes all things new, that virtue is gone. That mission is over. There is an urgency for the church, this side of Christ's return, to be faithful, to build a culture of evangelism and gospelization in the heart of every believer so that that church is faithful and loyal to God in all things. Imagine being loyal to God in everything except the one thing He's left you here to do. <laughs> That's not loyalty at all. As the Apostle Paul says to Philemon in Philemon 1.6, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. He's prescribed the very thing that makes the faith effective. The sharing of your faith. I pray that the sharing of your faith may be effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. In other words, you will never fully know God. You will never fully be in Christ if you are not sharing your faith. With that said, building a context for loyalty to God being fulfilled by the sharing of our faith, we come to Joshua chapter 23 this morning hopefully understanding that every text and every narrative, every passage we read each and every time we're together and everything that's preached on Sunday morning to the congregation, to the flock of God is with the knowledge that we are only full in Christ when we are on mission with Christ. So let us press in on these great verses today. Let us be encouraged by them, be transformed by them, and be prompted to the fullness of loyalty and obedience and mission of being a Christian. So would you stand with me? Joshua chapter 23. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. And the word of the Lord says, A long time after the Lord had given Israel rest from all the enemies around them, Joshua was old, advanced in age. So Joshua summoned all Israel, including its elders, leaders, judges, and officers, and said to them, I am old and advanced in age, and you have seen for yourselves everything the Lord your God did to all these nations on your account, because it was the Lord your God who was fighting for you. See, I have allotted these remaining nations to you as an inheritance for your tribes, including all the nations I have destroyed, from the Jordan westward to the Mediterranean Sea. The Lord your God will force them back on your account and drive them out before you so that you can take possession of their land, as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong and continue obeying all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you do not turn from it to the right or left, and so that you do not associate with these nations remaining among you. Do not call on the names of their gods or make an oath to them. Do not serve them or bow and worship to them. Instead, be loyal to the Lord your God as you have been to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God 
Father, may we see the richness of your glory, your nature, and your mission in this text this morning. It's in Christ, and we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen. Well, I did something, uh, I should say we, but I, did something really fun this week with our gathering group. Now, our gathering group is, uh, the eight, we, we meet with a group on Wednesday nights at 8 o'clock that are aged 18 to 25. And uh, we meet at 8 o'clock over in the bridge. This is college students, young people in the workforce, all the way up to the age of 25. And uh, this last week, we sat down with the group, uh, seen in this image right here. I think we have a picture of them, seen with this group right here. And uh, we did a, uh, a little workshop on how to exegete Scripture. So you'll see on the table, you've got everything from computers to Bibles to commentaries to dictionaries. And everybody but Garrett is at work, okay? <laughs> so uh, we sat down with them. We looked at these verses, Joshua 23, verses 1 through 8. We put them in groups, uh, pairs of two, asked them to read the text multiple times. And as they were to read the text multiple times, they were to, without any other resources available to them at that moment, come to the conclusion of what are some of those theological themes or theological tendons that are in the text. These bright young people shared what they saw in the text, and they said things like this. We see covenant. We see promise. We see obedience, we see remembrance, we see trust, we see sovereignty, we see perseverance, loyalty, and inheritance. Bright minds and pure hearts, they have. You see, in these beginning verses of Joshua's farewell address, he does something that the Apostle Paul often does when he writes, both in his greetings and in his farewells, he first, in these verses, gives glory to God for what God has done. This is to acknowledge the grace of God in all things. If you read Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul acknowledges the grace of God found in all things, including his calling. Second, Joshua, he rests in the inheritance of faith. This is the security of knowing that you belong to God. If you read Paul's first chapter to the church in Ephesus, the whole first chapter is about your position because you are a child of God, predestined by God to be one of His saints, knowing that you belong to God. And thirdly, he forecasts the mission for the people. In Colossians chapter 1, when the Apostle Paul writes to them, he says how thankful he is for the fruit of their mission. They understand the mission of the church, and that fruit is being witnessed from nation to nation. Well, Joshua and the Apostle Paul have some things in common. In Joshua's farewell address, he's looking at some of those things. He, he wants them to have an assurance. He wants them to see what the Lord has done. He wants them to know what's next and these types of things. So I want this morning for us to look at five distinctions given to Israel in these verses, in this farewell address, 
that call still for us today to be marked by in the faith. Now, these descriptors, as I will phrase it, I guess, are what I believe to be the tendon, uh, that, that, that there is a tendon word in these verses that, if you will, binds or holds Joshua's farewell address together. And I think that's in verse 8, when Joshua says, instead. By the way, anytime you're reading scripture and you see a verse start with instead, therefore, or but, it means listen closely because this is the, this is the verse that's tying these verses together. And in verse 8 he says, instead, be loyal to the Lord your God as you have been to this day. That word loyal in the Hebrew is debake. D-A-B-A-Q. Debake. That's the Hebrew word. And that word means, and your, your translation might say either cling or cleave or loyal. They all, they all come from the primitive root word debake, which is in Hebrew. And that word's very interesting in this text. Because the very first time that word was ever used in Scripture is Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall debake, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This word also means to fasten two objects together. It's a construction word. It means to take two things and bind them together like you would in construction. A permanent binding of two things. So, verses 1 through 7, in his farewell address, he's giving them a prescription of loyalty. And that, that loyalty, that prescription if they would adhere to the prescription and do the things they're supposed to do, then they will be found loyal, adhered, tethered. They will cleave. They will cling to God. Maybe to help understand how the word debate really applies in this, I might use the phrase that some of you might understand. That's back-buttering the tile back-buttering the tile. If you've ever done any type of tile construction, you know that there's two ways to place tile using an adhesive. The first way is to take your mortar, to take your, uh, your, your, your adhesive, and you place that adhesive on whatever foundation you're going to place the tile. Maybe it's a floor, maybe it's a wall. You're putting it on something sturdy, right? And you take that adhesive and you put the adhesive on the surface. Now the first way to place tile is to put the adhesive on the surface, take the tile, and press the tile into the adhesive. You can do that. That's the wrong way to do it. The right way to do it is to take the adhesive, put it on the foundation, then take the tile and take some of the same adhesive and scrape some of that adhesive onto the back of the tile. That is actually the only way that you can guarantee a true 
bonding of the tile to the foundation. So imagine that the adhesive that's on the foundation is what you're supposed to use and apply that to your life so that you can guarantee there's a real cling, there's a real cleaving, there's a real bonding that happens. It's like that. By the way, if you ever walk through a house and you do this to tile and it sounds like it's hollow, it's because they didn't back butter. You can almost guarantee it. In fact, if you walk through our fellowship hall, you can find several tiles in our fellowship hall that it seems like they weren't back buttered or weren't back buttered correctly. That means there's not a true adherence. Well, here Joshua uses this word to bridge the previous verses into the theology, and here's the theological word that we're resting in this morning with these verses. Perseverance. That's what he's talking about with them. In a farewell address where he's about to depart, he is telling them to be loyal is to persevere. This text is about perseverance in the faith. Those who belong to God must persevere. In the Bible dictionary, the word persevere means to be persistent despite difficulties or delays. Now just go ahead and say it to yourself now. I will have difficulties and delays in my life. In your Christian faith, in your journey with Christ, you will have difficulties or delays. Jesus told us this. Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble. It's true. But perseverance in the scripture teaches us how to be persistent in our faith in spite of even those things. So how does Joshua help them? How can they be found faithful and loyal? How can they cleave to the Lord as he says? How can we be found faithful? How can we be found loyal? How can we, like a man who marries a woman who leaves everything and clings to her, how can we leave everything in this world and cling to God. Joshua helps us with that, and he helps us in five ways. In verse 3 of Joshua chapter 20, 23, he tells us that we must be remembering the Lord. Look at verse 3. Remember the Lord. And you have seen for yourselves everything the Lord your God did. To all these nations on your account, because it was the Lord your God who was fighting for you. Listen, the testimony of the saints is powerful. It is absolutely powerful. To say back to the Lord and to say to others, those things the Lord has done is simply healing to the soul and a witness to the nations. The question is, when was the last time you shared your testimony of salvation to someone? When was the last time you stood before the nations and said, I'll tell you about my God and what he did for us. Here's how we got our inheritance. Here's how we got the world that we have. Here's how we got our land. Here's how we got our faith. Here's how we got our promise. Because the Lord did these things. When was the last time you shared the story of how you were forgiven for your sin? and given the inheritance of eternal life because of Christ Jesus. When was the last time you told somebody that story? 
There is no more important story for you to tell in your life. There's not a single more important story you will ever share in this life than that story. When was the last time you told somebody about the things that God is doing in you, around you? The things that he has seen, or that you have seen him do. Think about that. And ask yourself this simple question. Well, then should I be sharing my testimony more? I can't answer that. Only you can answer that. Like at the evangelism conference this last week, evangelism ought to be embedded in the culture of the church. A testimony of who God is and what He has done for His people, how He has saved them, how He has made His promises fulfilled in them. That should be deeply rooted in the culture of every New Testament church. It's not just to be buried in the job description of the hired minister at the church. It is for everyone who claims the name of Christ. Remembering the Lord. Verse 4. See, I have allotted these remaining nations to you as an inheritance for your tribes, including all the nations I have destroyed from the Jordan westward to the Mediterranean Sea. Second thing we see, Joshua tells them, ready yourself for what's next. Ready yourself for what's next. If there is one thing that is ever so clear in the bright text of the Holy Bible, it is that the saints had great expectations and understanding of what is next. The Lord has not left us alone to wonder what is next. Joshua tells them what to expect next. He encourages them in this. He says, it's not completely done. But trust that the Lord is going to continue to see this through and there's more land for you to inherit. There is a mission still at work. When Jesus ascended, he said, the mission's not over because I'm leaving you. It's just getting started. Isn't it interesting how many commonalities through the book of Joshua we've seen in Joshua and Jesus? Remember, Jesus is, Joshua is a kind of Jesus. He is a prophecy of the coming Christ. We know what we should expect is next for us. You know, both in Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 28, we are told what is next. So what happens after you come to faith in Christ? Well, here's the answer. Matthew chapter 16 verse 18 after Peter has made a confession that Jesus is the Son of God, He is the Messiah, Jesus says this, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Read with me right here on this banner that's been hanging here for four years. Matthew 28, 19-20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This hangs on our stage every single day, every single week. It might have become something you don't pay any attention to anymore, but that is the, what's next. That is the mission of the church. What happens after you give your life? What happens after you call yourself a Christian? You go about being a co-laborer with God to see the church being built. That's our mission. That's the sole reason Christ has not returned yet. Because he's not done building his kingdom. When he's done, when he's ready by the will of the Father, when they have determined that the church and the building of the kingdom is done with what they're going to do, then Christ will come back. But until he comes back, that's our mission. I don't care what your profession is. I don't care what your background is. It doesn't matter how you came to Christ, by what way. Was it a camp? Was it a vacation Bible school? Was it as an adult? None of that stuff is relevant to the reality that for all of us who claim Christ, this is our mission. Christ is building his church, and we are co-laborers with him. Paul explicitly tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. He says, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. That is the mission. That is what's next. That is the plan. There is plan A and there is no plan B, as David Platt says. There is not some other way that God is going to build his church. He is going to build his church through the confession of believers and the sharing of the gospel. That is God's way of building his church through Christ Jesus. And you don't get to determine that God's going to build it some other way. God has said, no, I'm going to build it through your confession of faith in the, my son Jesus Christ. The third thing that Joshua says to them in verse 5, he teaches them to rest in God's promise. Rest in God's promise. Look at verse 5. Let me go back to it. Verse 5. The Lord your God will force them back on your account and drive them out before you so that you can take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. In other words, God's made a promise. He's powerful enough. His will is strong enough. And his goodness and his grace are wide enough to do exactly what he said he's going to do. Because at the end of the day, you can rest in God's promises because the sovereignty of God is in the text. The sovereignty of God is over his church. The sovereignty of God, which means the ruling power of God over all creation, is something we can rest in. God's ruling power in all of creation is both a confidence and a rest for us. When you see the dark day approaching, when you feel the pressures of this world, when the spiritual work gets hard, God is over all of it. His presence is a gift to our soul and a peace to our circumstances. He is at work at all times. He is at work. And by the way, rest is not sleep. That's not what that means. 
When you see rest in Scripture, it's not about just getting enough sleep. You know, Some of us can go on three hours. Some of us need five hours. Some of us may need ten hours. You know, And, and when we don't get our hours, people know. Right? But resting in God's promise is not about how much sleep you get. Don't be a lazy Christian. The Bible speaks about rest for the soul. When the soul sees God for who he is and what he can do, the soul is at rest. When you start thinking about the trouble and the worry and the impossibilities of living the Christian life and living out your faith and how difficult the circumstances are, and you let that control who you are as a Christian, what comes out of your mouth, what principles you'll apply from God's Word, when you begin to shape your Christianity based on how much at peace you are with the troubling world, you are not at rest. You don't understand the sovereignty of God. Each and every Wednesday night, uh, over the last uh, several weeks, and for the many more several weeks on Wednesday night, we're going through stories of um, uh, ancient theologians and missionaries and martyrs of the faith. And the things that they went through to be faithful with the mission of God and how at rest their soul was in spite of their circumstances because they understood the sovereignty of God. They understood God's ruling power over all creation, including them. And when you have that kind of rest for your soul, all of a sudden what looks impossible starts to seem possible. Not because you have any power in you, but because you trust that the power of God is at work in all things. Joshua wanted to remind them that it's God who's done this. It's God who has accomplished. It's God who's at work. So be faithful. Be loyal. Because you know God's the one at work. Fifth, remain in the word. Look at what he says in verse 6. Be very strong and continue obeying all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you do not turn from it to the right or the left. Listen, the greatest source of Christian conflict, that is our personal conflict, the inner spiritual struggle bus, if you will, is the neglect of God's Word. It's plain and simple. The neglect of God's Word. When people come to me and they've got issues in their life, and I'm glad they do, and I'm, I'm, and I'm always available. When you have issues, when you're on that spiritual struggle bus, when you've got personal conflict, and it comes up against your faith, and oh, you're struggling. And you come in and you visit with me. And some of you know this. The very first thing I'm going to ask you is, how much time are you spending in God's Word? That's the very first question. doesn't mean it's the only question. It means it's the first question. How much time are you spending in God's Word? You've heard me say it before, and I'll say it till I'm dead. And in fact, it's going to be said after I'm dead, because it's going to be on my tombstone if I have one. It'll be somewhere. Put it on a plaque on a wall somewhere. I don't know. Wherever, whatever my kids want to do. And it's this motto. Your spiritual life will never rise above the amount of time you spend in God's Word. You can't have all the Christian things you desire to have. You can't have all the faith things you want to have if you're spending no time in God's Word. God has always given His Word so that His people will not just know Him, but know how to relate to Him. Know how to be obedient. Know how to deal with conflict. Know how to deal with emotion. Know how to deal with, with, with depression and all of those types of things. 
We are to remain in God's word for those reasons, but the primary reason that we are to remain in God's word is what Joshua says, so that we can stay on the obedient path that we are called to stay on. And we won't turn to the left, and we won't turn to the right. We won't get off the road. We will be found obedient. The only way to know you're being obedient is to first and foremost know what you've been instructed to do. You can't be obedient to God if you don't know what God's telling you to do. And the only way to know what God's telling you to do and be obedient to God and be faithful in that is to know His Word. I was asked many years ago, what's the, what do you, in your opinion, what is the greatest problem in the New Testament church today? And my answer was then and is now. Biblical illiteracy. Biblical illiteracy. Oh, I know we love the Word. I know we have many copies of the Bible. I know we're a people of the book. I know we like to put verses on everything, shirts, mugs, all that kind of stuff. We tattoo it on our arms, all that, I mean, all that kind of stuff. And I'm not judging tattoos. I want a tattoo. My wife won't let me get one, okay? Anyway. But we love to say that we're these people who love the Bible. And we believe in the Bible. Then why are we so biblically illiterate in the church? You can't, have, you can't say one thing and then be another thing. Something's not right there. That's just, I don't know if that's science or philosophy or what. Here's why it's so important to obey every word of the Lord. Because it is our path to righteous living. Christ's atonement on the cross paid for our righteousness but righteous living a pure heart an obedient life comes from attention to the Bible Jesus' words in John 15 7 are a clear prescription to this truth when Jesus said if you remain in me and my words remain in you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for me you see what Jesus did there he said if you claim me okay if you claim me as your Savior and remain in my word. Then ask and it will be given to you. Now make no mistake, this passage does not lend itself to permission for a word of faith movement. Meaning, quite literally, that the word of faith movement is that you can have and be anything you want simply by asking Jesus. You can call anything to be because you asked Jesus. No, this passage is actually a testimony of faith that produces spiritual fruit. When Jesus says, ask and you shall have it, it's predicated on the treasure of your heart being Christ and what He has said. It's predicated on the treasure of your heart being faithfulness to Christ and faithfulness to the mission of Christ. But in that, the fullness of your faith is not realized just because you claim Christ. You can claim Christ and not know him and not be in his word and it's meaningless so Jesus says if you want to remain faithful don't just say my name say my name and remain in my words it is true many who desire to be Christians because they want the title they want the association but they don't abide in Christ Listen, to be Christian is not a social posture. It is not a convenient check mark for certain applications. 
And it is not a weapon to be used to establish a moral high ground in an argument. I hear that more than anything. People are making their moral argument and they say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And then you hear their moral argument and you go, no, you're not. No, you're not. No, to be a Christian is to abide in Christ, to cling, to cleave, to be fixed to and loyal to God and His Word. Joshua says, remain in the Word. And lastly, verse 7. And so that you do not associate with these nations remaining among you, do not call in the names of their gods or make an oath to them, do not serve them or bow and worship to them. Lastly, he says, reject pagan idols. Reject pagan idols. This is, to be as simple as possible, to embrace pagan idols is to love the world and all her fancy, enticing, lustful, impure, and popular propositions. You cannot cling to God and cling to the world. I had a pastor who one time said this, if you have one foot in the world and one foot in the church, you will end up hating both of them. You'll become bitter towards both because they are in conflict with each other. And you cannot live in conflict. Eventually, if you embrace just as much of the world as you claim to embrace of the church, you're going to end up being at best apathetic towards both. At worst, hating both. They can't coexist. And you may think you have the ability to represent both and represent both really well. That's simply a trick of the devil. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17 say this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If a man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of this world. And the world will pass away, and its lusts will pass also. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Joshua is telling them this pagan worship is still out there. It's still out there hiding in the mountains, tucked under a bush somewhere, in a little house on the range outside of town. These Canaanites are still alive. And if you want to be found loyal to God, you will reject their pagan idols. You will reject the world's sinful propositions. Israel was to be separate and distinct from the Canaanite ways. To associate with their pagan ways was to break loyalty to God. When you associate with the pagan ways of the world, you are breaking loyalty to God. That's not me. That, that's what the scripture teaches. I just read you what John the Apostle says to the church. Those are holy written words. When you make your appeal to the things of this world, you are breaking loyalty to God. And Joshua says he warns them against that. And I today warn you against that because scripture warns you against that. 
the Christian should be diligent to ask this question. Should I be doing this thing? Should I be doing this thing? Now, don't become legalistic. Don't decide you're not going to go and buy a meal at a restaurant because the person making your meal may be a pagan, okay? Don't get all legalistic on me, but the Christian ought to live a life that asks themselves the question, should I be reading this? Should I be watching this? Should I be in this spot at this moment? Should I be agreeing to this? Should I be signing this? Should I be doing these things? Because if these things lend themselves to pagan idolatry, if these things lend themselves to the lust of the flesh, the lusts of the world and all of their propositions, the Christian ought to go, then I won't do these things. That's how the Christian is to live. That's how the Israelites were to live. They were to sign no propositions given to them by the Canaanites. Well, in closing, these five descriptions that you've seen, I think, on the screen behind me today, to remember the Lord, to ready yourself for the mission of the Lord, to rest in God's promises, to remain in the Word, and to reject pagan idols, these five things that are found in Joshua's farewell address are a healthy prescription for us today that we might preserve in the faith and be found loyal to God. May it be said, and you may think this is just a a ridiculous way of saying it, but maybe the illustration helps. May it be said of the flock at First Baptist Church Seminole that we are backbuttered with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the root and foundation of our faith, God the Father, and the prescription of His Word, that adhesive truth, that we have taken that adhesive truth and we have rubbed that all over our lives, on our minds, on our hearts, and we are in deep, unbreakable bondage in loyalty to God. Would you stand with me as we move into a time of worship, a time of response, a time to let the Spirit of God rest on us, and a time for us to declare the greatness of God together as a church family. But think about this in the core of your heart as you're singing. Are you loyal to God? Is the confession of faith of your sins found in the person of Jesus Christ? And are you, day by day, remaining, abiding in His Word? Let that resonate and consider that this morning. Father, we love you. We trust you. And God, I do pray that every time we come together and every time we gather around your Word, may it be you speaking to us, shaping us, reforming us, causing us to repent where we need to repent that we might trust you doing that you are doing a great work in us and might it build in us a sense of urgency as we come to terms with knowing that you've called us to be co-laborers with you for the building of your kingdom might we be found faithful in all things it's in christ we pray and all of god's people said